happy September. Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. I am Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard, your host, and September is one of my favorite times of year. I always feel fresh and new and optimistic about the future because it's the beginning of the school year in my mind. I just love it. It usually gets a little cooler in Florida. I Anyway, so welcome back. Um, thank you so much for all of the very sweet comments and notes with regards to our last episode with Laura Oakman. That was a really difficult one for me to put out in in the form that it was in. Um, I I took a lot of, well, it took a lot of willpower for me not to edit out some of those parts. So I really do appreciate your thoughts um, and your very sweet notes. And I shared them with Laura. So I think I could speak for both of us. And when I say we really appreciate that. Interesting little note for those of you who are students, um, law school or grad. Here's something for you. Um, If you're interested in labor law or labor studies, check out the um, Major League Baseball's Players Trust 2019 Michael Weiner or Weiner. I'm not sure how to say it. I think it's Weiner Scholarship for Labor Studies. So gist of it is up to five awards of $10,000 each. Deadline is November 12th, 2018. And you can find more info at playerstrust.org. This is not sponsored. It's just something that I saw today and I will be reminding you all of because I think that's fantastic um, that they do that and it would be really cool if I learned that one of you guys got one. Okay, for today's episode, I have yet another legend on. It's very exciting that I get these women to come on and talk to me. We are coming up on the 40th anniversary of the landmark victory of Ludke v. Kuhn. Bowie Kuhn was the commissioner of Major League Baseball. Melissa Ludke um, at the time was a 20-something sports reporter for Sports Illustrated, and she was barred from entering the Yankees clubhouse while on assignment during the World Series. This is in um, 77. MLB policies, well, MLB basically created a policy that banned women from locker rooms at the time. And Ludke's suit was about equal access. Um, And the judge saw it that way. She ruled in favor of uh, Melissa, basically saying that um, this fell under the 14th Amendment because New York City owned Yankee Stadium. So those of you in law school wondering, how did that happen? That's how. We have a fundamental right to pursue our career, is what was stated in the opinion. Um, The policy was based solely on sex. There was no other factor involved in the policy, just the the sex of the reporter. And it went against our rights to due process. So this was a really, really big uh, sports law moment and really big for women in sports. By having this ruling, it opened up a lot of other opportunities that might not seem related, like women trainers or women on the field. It just, all of the excuses for not having women in certain areas of sport went away. Melissa moved on from sports a few years later and focused on societal issues of women and children. She's an author, filmmaker, and award-winning journalist. She reported for Sports Illustrated, CBS News, and Time Magazine. 
She won the front page award for the Newswomen's Club of New York, the Mary Garber Pioneer Award from the Association of Women in Sports Media, and the Yankee Quill Award for Lifetime Achievement, citing Melissa's distinguished history for fighting for equal opportunities for women sports writers. I am so pleased to have this interview coming out pretty close to when that 40th anniversary is. I think it's at the end of September. So um, we're just a few weeks away. And I really hope you enjoy this interview. Hi, Melissa. Hey, Bobby. How are you doing? I am great. How are you? Well, I was really hot today. It's, uh, you know, I don't know about these seasons anymore. But uh, I'm raring to go with you, so um, I've got the air conditioning on now, and let's do it. Are you still up in Amherst? I'm actually in Cambridge, uh, extremely humid uh, right now, and I just left my daughter off at college today, so I'm entering another new empty nest moment. Oh my gosh, where is she going? She goes to Wellesley College. Ah, like mom. Yeah. She's a lot closer. Well, you know, the like mom part was the tough part for her to get over, but she likes it on her on her own, uh, you know, basis. So that's that's cool for me. But uh, yeah, so <laughs> that's funny. Um, yeah. So I always start by asking um, because this elicits great uh, stories from people. How did you fall in love with sports? Ooh, fall in love. Uh, you know, it was my dad and my mom. But um, so let me give you a little sense of the sort of romance and how it got started. (laughs) I I grew up in a college town, which is a great way to get interested in sports. I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts. You mentioned that earlier. It's in Western Mass. And uh, my dad was a professor there. My mother later, after she got a Ph.D., became a professor nearby. But uh, that was kind of the life I lived, very much the uh, professorial um, you know, kind of work at, at at home. But one of the great things was that we had sports teams, you know, kind of right down the hill. And um, so from a very early age, um, I was introduced first to the football team, which were then called the Redmen, which oh, is, boy. A, well, that's changed. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that, God. That has changed. They're now the Minutemen. And, um, you know, one of the things I remember even more than the game was the idea of, uh, you know, being a young little kid, maybe five or six years old. And what the funnest thing was, was my dad would take us on the homecoming and everyone would throw their beanies into the air, their little colored beanies. And we would run under the stadium and pick up all the beanies. And that was kind of my introduction to football. That was more interesting (laughs) to me than the game at the time. But uh, quickly... Uh, He decided, and by the way, we ended up having five kids. I was the oldest, and the first two were girls. But, you know, that didn't stop my dad. He wanted to go watch football. He'd grown up in the Midwest. And, you know, anyone who grows up in the Midwest, football's their sport. So he made us groupies and fans, and he would load us up on Saturdays if there was an away game of the Redmen, uh, the UMass team, Off we'd go, whether it was Harvard Stadium or Holy Cross or, you know, wherever it was. We would just get in and off we'd go. And eventually my brother came along five years after me and he was loaded in after a while. But um, and then during the winter, um, we'd go down to the old 
what was called the Curry Hicks Cage at mm-hmm. the time. It was a very small basketball arena. It was before Julius Irving arrived at UMass and sort of put it on the map. And um, it was like watching a basketball game, you know, where you could literally reach out and touch it. It was just that in, intimate and that close. So the team wasn't great, but, you know, I learned basketball that way. And I, you know, just through being introduced this way. And then, you know, they encouraged us to get involved in sports. And, you know, you may, Bobby, so, you know, you may know, and some people who are maybe my age will certainly remember that there were a lot of schools back then where if you were a girl, they didn't have organized sports. I mean, they just didn't have those teams. So I know we take it for granted today that if you're a girl, you can play sports. And of course, I thought that everyone had this opportunity. But, you know, as I've gotten older, I realized that we really were lucky to grow up in a town like Amherst where girls did have sports teams. So, again, from a very early age, you know, I just played sports. I played them. I watched them. I watched them on TV with my dad. I mean, you know, we just had every kind of exposure to it. And where my mom comes in is she loved baseball. She loved baseball. She had been the designated sitter rather than hitter in her family (laughs) of four growing up in a suburb of Boston. She had become her dad's seatmate at Fenway Park. And through through that experience in the 40s, early 40s, uh, maybe late 30s, early 40s, she just loved baseball. She loved it, loved it, loved it, and would go to hit games with him. But when she couldn't go to the game, when they weren't going to the game, she would listen on her radio. And she she had these incredible, she'd write away every season for these big, big, you know, this is not baseball cards, but like, you know, big three-quarter uh, portrait uh, of the of the starting lineup. And she would thumbtack them all around her her bedroom ceiling. She gave them to me. I can still see where the thumbtacks went in. And she'd have them surrounding her and she'd listen to the radio and she'd score all the games. And then she kept a scrapbook um, of the games, you know, with her scorecard. And then she'd go downstairs in the morning and she'd cut out all of the coverage. There were a lot more Boston newspapers in that day. Mm -hmm. So she gave me my love of baseball. So, um, that was kind of, it was just surrounding me and in kind of everywhere I look, sports was sort of what we did and what we did as a family often. What were the sports that you played? Oh, okay. In the, in the fall, I played volleyball. (laughs) In the winter, I played basketball. And in the spring, I played tennis. Those were my three major sports. And so I would compete, you know, on teams in those And then during the summer, we would go to Cape Cod to my grandmother's house on Cape Cod for uh, a month each summer. We'd alternate with our cousins between July and August. And I would I learned to sail and became very competitive in sailboat racing, which was a little odd back then for a girl. Most of the (laughs) most of the boys were the skippers. Right. But um, I loved it and ended up competing in that. I would play tennis down there. So it was just constant. I mean, it was just what we did. We didn't have any, you know, smartphones or iPads to occupy our time. So we would just be out of the house, you know, doing some kind of sport or another. Oh, sure. Where was your grandmother's house? 
Uh, she had a house in Hyannisport. Oh, okay. So I actually grew up in the Hyannisport during the years of uh, John F. Kennedy's presidency. So that was really kind of a rather exciting time. I, I did play a few games of touch football down there, <laughs> as, one, as one might expect, uh, given the uh, legacy of that family and their sports. But, um, you know, we had the, as I said, the sailboat racing and the tennis and it was uh, it was a magical. Um, I have to admit, it was a magical childhood um, with all of that activity that we had, you know, and all of that exposure to these sports and and also, frankly, to history. I mean, it was just extraordinary. When you were deciding where to go to college, how did Wellesley? Is it because it was between Wellesley and Smith or were, you know, what were you thinking when you picked Wellesley? Uh, a couple of things. Uh, one was that my father, as I mentioned, was a professor. He had a sabbatical year my my senior year for which I did everything short of cursing him out and saying, how can you do this to me? Take me away from all my <laughs> friends in the senior year and all of this. And of course, I had a boyfriend, ah, you know, and it was just all of this, you know, whining and crying and oh, how mean can you be? And then I ended up in Rome, Italy for my senior year of, of high school and had the most magical year of my life, which is, you know, taught me lots, <laughs> of, lots of lessons. You know, when yeah. you think things are going to be just terrible and how can you do this, something magical might be waiting on the other side. So um, when I got to this school in Rome, it was, it was an American school over there, very small school, like 40 in our entire cl you know, class, so maybe 150 in the whole school. And um, I ended up, you know, I never took physics because that's what I would have taken if I'd stayed here. But I took things like the history of the Renaissance. I took art history. And the teacher that I had for those two courses is a woman uh, to whom I owe a lot in my life, um, a woman named Franca Camis. And Franca was just, I mean, I, she, I just idolized her. I just thought, oh my God, if I could be like her. And lo and behold, she had studied art history at Wellesley College before going on to Harvard and getting her master's. And she just opened up a world to me that I just didn't even know existed. I, I fell in love with art history. I ended up going to um, Wellesley and majoring in art history. And I think in large part due to that experience of that year and that woman, uh, Franca Camise, who was an extraordinary role model for me. And I just admired her, liked her. She 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 was a brilliant, extraordinary teacher. Um, the other thing is, and this is kind of my rebellious streak, um, my mother had had gone to Wellesley, but she had sort of been almost forced to go by her sort of family tradition. Her two older sisters went. And so she didn't ever feel she had any choice. And even though she made great, great friendships at Wellesley, I don't think she envisioned, I know she didn't envision her oldest daughter following in that. She sort of uh, wanted me to go to a school like Bennington or whatever. So in, in some ways, I, I joke that I rebelled against my mother to go to Wellesley. Um, <laughs> And uh, and so I went and, you know, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. And um, I did major in art history, as I said. And um, it was it was it was a magical place to be for me. And it was where I uh, where I learned how to row and do crew and, and became a member of the first intercollegiate crew at Wellesley. And that 
really set me on the way to understanding, um, you know, the value and the of sports as a sort of symbol of of sort of women's rights and what it stood for, because that was the time in which Title IX was being passed. And so it began to bring sort of threads of all of this together for me. And uh, so that experience was it was invaluable. So that was yet another sport. Were there um, were there many co-ed colleges at that time? Co-ed. Yeah, there were tons of co-ed okay. colleges. But there were also still a lot of uh, women's colleges, right. although my year, 1969, when we entered, was the first year that many of the formerly all-male schools went co-ed. For example, you have a woman named Lori Mifflin, who later becomes the first woman sports writer at the New York Daily News, and she's in that first co-ed class at Yale. Okay, this is no coincidence. All right. And you have Robin Herman, who becomes the first woman hired by The New York Times to cover sports and covers hockey and is, in fact, the first woman into a locker room at the All-Star Game in 1975. She is in that first class at Princeton. So this is a transitional time. This is a time when you're coming out of the sort of first phases of the sort of punch of the women's movement and these schools are becoming the top Ivy League schools are opening their doors to women. And so women are now confronting a choice. Do I want to go to an all women's school like a Wellesley or a Smith that remained all women or do I want to kind of be on that cutting edge and sort of put myself into this co-ed experience? Um, so it was a transitional time. And um I made the choice for Wellesley and then you have Lori and you have Robin and, you know, so it's been kind of interesting for me to think through uh, this time in this context of sort of our history as I kind of piece together sort of why we made the choices we did and how we were affected by, you know, kind of where we went to college. And I'm really happy to share a story about Lori and a story about Robin, if you want it, that will really, I think, give you a sense of how they come out of this experience uh, with the resilience that they did to take on this job. Of I course. Mean, well, Lori ends up at, at Yale and um, she's come in there as a field hockey player. She, you know, she was, a, you know, in her high school, she was a champion field hockey player and she arrives at Yale and has the expectation that, hey, we're here. We want to play field hockey. Uh, you must have a team, don't you? And of course, Yale did not have a field hockey team. So from very early on, she goes to the athletic department. She says, you know, I think we should have a field hockey team. And gradually they kind of sort of say, okay, you pull it together. We're not going to really call it anything, but we'll kind of say you can do it. And, you know, so she's kind of organizing all of this. And the way that she kind of backs into sports writing is she then goes to the Yale Daily News and says, by the way, Yale has a field hockey team and we're playing such and such games. So can you assign someone to uh, cover the games? The women are going to be playing. And the people at the Yale Daily News basically say, well, why would we do that? <laughs> I mean, what, what? No, we don't have anyone intending to cover this. You write about it. You cover the game and send us what you write. So not only did she pull together the whole team, et cetera, but she ended up writing 
the stories for them. And eventually, by the time she got to her senior year, they had recognized field hockey as a sport. So she was really quite instrumental in thinking about sports and moving into reporting because she was forced to. Um, And then that just plays out a little later on. She ends up leaving Yale and she goes to the Daily News, but not as a sports reporter. She's covering City Hall. But she still has this sense in her that it's very important to think about covering, you know, the women as well as the men. So she notices that Queens College, which was a terrific basketball school at the time, is going to be playing in a major national tournament in uh, Madison Square Garden. So she goes over to the sports department and says, well, you're going to cover the women, right? I mean, the Queens team is like ranked in the country. And they looked at her again like, why (laughs) Why would we do that? (laughs) And the sports editor basically said, well, if you think we should cover it, go cover it. Give us the story. So she does. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So this is sort of how it begins. And then I'm going to end the story quickly. She gets to 1976. So this is now three years after she's graduated. She's been on the City Hall beat for like, you know, two and a half years doing the Queens basketball team two times. And she notices that in 1976, in the Summer Olympics, a lot of women's sports are going to be added for the very first time. Women's basketball, women's crew, women's volleyball, et cetera. So she goes back to the sports department. She says, I'm assuming you're going to assign someone to cover the women's, you know, sports there. And they look at her like, well, we hadn't really thought about doing that. No, we don't know. No. And they said, well, why don't you? And so they take her up and she covers all the women's sports at the Olympics in 76. And it's after that they decide to make her their first woman um, in the sports department. And she goes on to cover the NHL. She'd never covered hockey, but they figured she played field hockey. She'd know ice hockey. (laughs) So, you know, so she starts there. So you can see the, the roots of this are her coming into a, you know, a very male dominated environment and just kind of figuring out how to make it work and persisting, you know, that notion of persistence. Mm-hmm. So then you've got Robin down at um, Princeton and Robin is coming into the school, not so much from the sports angle, but she's coming in from the perspective of wanting to do journalism, you know, as well as do her own major. So she goes to the newspaper and signs up early on to be a reporter for the Princetonian. And um, she comes back about a week later because they're going to make their assignments of what beat each person will cover, et cetera. And she goes in and she starts looking at the list. And, you know, there aren't very many women who have signed up to join the Princetonian. She's one of the few. And so she's reading the assignments. And as she goes across the list, she sees that all the men have a regular kind of newsy beat. And then they've been assigned a sports beat. She was not assigned a sports beat. She was only assigned a news beat. So she goes to the editor and she says, why didn't you give me a sports beat? I mean, I've signed up. I see that you've given it to all the men. Why didn't you give it to me? And they said, well, we never thought you'd want to cover it. I mean, a woman covering sports. I mean, they were just <laughs> bewildered you know, by this request. And basically her answer was, you know, if I'm, co- if I'm signed up and that's the way it is and we're covering it, you know, then give me a sports beat. So um, I think that they, I think I can't remember the full story, but I think they asked her, you know, well, what do you want to cover? And I think the first thing she thought of, I think, was like rugby. So she may have covered that. 
But that's how she got into sports reporting was through, again, seeing that she had been left out, that the assumption or presumption was that a woman wouldn't do that. And she said, no, 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 I I am going to do it. And so when she left Princeton, she uh, got an internship first at the New York Times Sports Department, and they hired her right away. And again, she was the uh, the first woman hired by them as a sports reporter. So you start seeing the patterns, you know, that come to kind of come along and sort of who ended up being the people who were really the pioneers, you know, in that era. You know, there were people like Lori and people like Robin. I guess I'll throw myself into into the mix. I come in a slightly different way, you know, sort of through art history as my major, but recognizing that I didn't want to go to graduate school in art history. I really had worked at an art gallery in San Francisco, didn't feel like it was really for me and sort of thought, well, what's plan B? And plan B for me was what else do you know? And sports was high up on the agenda. Um, I can then kind of tell you about how that notion of you know, being high up on the agenda actually came into a situation that gave me the opportunity um, if you want to go there. But, yeah, um, please share that story about uh, Frank Gifford. Yeah, you know that story. Okay, well, I'll share it. Um, I was at the Cape um, on a summer afternoon. This is after I'd graduated from college. And my graduation speaker was a phenomenal woman named Shirley Chisholm who was brought up to be the commencement speaker at Wellesley, I think in part because our class had been exceptional in the sense that Wellesley College, based on what had happened in the civil rights movement, had really done a great job in terms of recruiting by far the most African-American students that ever had been in a Wellesley class. And you had Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman to ever run for president, and she had done that gone into the presidential primaries in 1972, was still a congresswoman. And she came up and gave an amazing commencement. You know, sometimes you just, people say, I can't even remember who my commencement speaker was. Oh yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, right. But I remember Shirley Chisholm to this day. I I keep a postcard of her next to my computer because her call to us that day was to say, you are educated women at a time in our nation's history. And you owe it. You owe it to yourselves and you owe it to the country to get involved in the two large social movements of our day, the civil rights movement and the women's movement. So, you know, I took those words very, I took them to heart, but I didn't quite know how to act on them. Um, And I ended up just going sort of back to my family's house on the Cape and trying to think about, well, what does it mean? What do I do? And I was kind of fumbling around. And then in August, I had the opportunity one evening um, at the Cape to uh, join in a dinner uh, where Frank Gifford was at the table. Frank Gifford was then a broadcaster, sportscaster for uh, ABC Sports, which was the leading sports network of the time. And he had just done the Munich Olympics in 1972, and he was about to start on Monday Night Football and now, we just got talking over dinner and we must have talked for two and a half hours or so about sports. And at the end of it, he gave me what I took then as a great compliment. <laughs> and that was, you know, he said, for a girl, for a girl, you know a lot about sports. You know, what he meant by that very nicely, I think, was 
I knew how to talk sports. You know, there's a language about sports. And if you know it, you're you're comfortable and you're conversant in it. And I think that's what he was saying. But he quickly followed that up with, you know, what I call the invitation of my lifetime. And that was to say that if I was ever coming to New York, I should certainly look look him up, let him know I'm coming. And he would be happy to introduce me to people at um, ABC Sports, you know, some of the producers, et cetera. So when I left the dinner that night, um, you know, when I'd come to the dinner, I had no intention of going to New York. By the time I left, I was making plans to go to New York. And within about, I would say, three or four weeks, I let him know that I was, in fact, coming down. And um, as a man of his word, uh, there he was waiting on the on the when the elevator door opened at ABC Sports. There he was waiting to introduce me and took me all around and very generously, um, you know, introduced me to, uh, I think, almost every producer there, et cetera. And the one producer that I was really intrigued by, not surprisingly, um, was the only woman producer <laughs> there. And she was a, a woman named Ellie Rieger, who was um, married to a man named, uh, is it Roger Rieger? Uh, anyway, he was Robert Rieger. He was a fantastic sports photographer, and she was a sports producer at ABC Sports. Tough, tough, you know, to get a job like that when you were, were a woman back then. She had it, and they had assigned her at that point to do a special on women in sports. So I, Frank introduced me to her. I just immediately glommed onto her and she very kindly invited me to come over to the studio where, where she and her crew, who were all women, uh, were working on this, this special. Now, for people trying to think about 1973 and the fall, the big event of that fall had been Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King in the Houston Astrodome. Mm -hmm. That had just happened just prior to this. So the reason that ABC was doing this was, I think, partly because of the Battle of the Sexes tennis tournament with Billie Jean, but also really taking into account that Title IX had, had been signed into law in 1972 and was just beginning to show its promise, you know, with, with, with sports opening up to girls. So I went over and extended my time in New York um, and stayed over there and hung out for two or three days over at the studio where they were working. And when I saw Billie Jean King walk in that room, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it was like sports. It was like there was nothing else I was going to do with my life. I mean, that was it. It just answered the question for me right then and there um, that I was going to do something. I didn't know what and I didn't have any pretense of thinking that because I'd had this introduction from Frank that I was going to be able to be hired because I knew nothing about TV. I had never written a story ever. I mean, I'd never done reporting for my college newspaper, my high school newspaper. So I didn't have anything that you could call media experience, but something in me just knew that this was going to happen in my life and I was going to make it happen somehow. So by January, um, I did move down to New York and I moved into an apartment with one of the production assistant who worked with Ellie Rieger on that um, on that special. So, um, you know, here I am in New York and I, I can kind of pick it up from there. But essentially, I was right. 
Um, I never did get hired by ABC Sports. I I went back home to the Cape, and the idea I had, the idea, which was a very woman, you know, um, <laughs> uh, an idea that a girl would have, and that was that I would really go home and I bought myself a book on stenography. I practiced my typing. I was a pretty good typist. I'd learned typing in high in uh, high school. And so I practiced and practiced and practiced. And I went back down to ABC with the idea of taking the test to become a secretary because I thought, well, you know, that's how I get the foot in the door. And then from there, kind of find out, you know, a way to try to move up the ladder. That was my concept. <laughs> um, so anyway, I took the test. Um, you know, I got the results. I carried them up with me and I ended up sitting with one of the vice presidents that Frank had uh, introduced me to. And he's kind of holding my, my, my results of my test in one hand and he's holding my resume in the other. And he just looks me in the eye and he says, you know, um, you did okay, you know, on the typing part, you know, Steno's not so good, but I'm holding a resume. It tells me you graduated from Wellesley College. I really don't think you want to be a secretary. <laughs> Um, which was a very pointed way of saying we're not hiring. Yeah. Um, sort of know the gig and we don't like it. And um, that's not what's going to happen here. And it's, you know, great knowing you, but no. And I didn't know then what I do now. And that is that the lawsuit, and you know this as a lawyer, I'm sure, the legal action that took place in 1970 and then sort of became like a game of dominoes with each one falling. In 1970, 46 women at Newsweek sued uh, Newsweek, The Washington Post, Kay Graham, et cetera, for gender discrimination based on very well-documented uh, research that they had done with an attorney showing that women were hired even with the same resumes. You know, the man may have gone to Princeton, the woman went to Smith, et cetera. And the man would be hired as a writer and the woman would be hired as a secretary or a clip filer or, you know, a fact checker, et cetera, much lower levels to start with. And so those suits were moving through the media industry, um, NBC, NBC. They eventually got to the New York Times with the Betsy Wade lawsuit, et cetera. Time Inc. was sued by its women for the same reasons. So what ABC was essentially saying to me is we're not going to do this because we're not going to add you to a potential list that could go into a lawsuit. Right. But I didn't know that. I mean, I had no concept at that time that these legal actions were taking place. I, I, I just didn't know. I mean, now I know Lynn Povich very well. She's a great friend of mine and she's the one who wrote The Good Girls Revolt about the news oh suit. Which, by the way. So I, I'm, I'm going to interrupt yeah. you right now yeah. with a very asinine comment on these very serious issues. That was such a good Amazon show. And the fact yeah. that they cut it makes me so mad to this day. <laughs> well, it makes me mad, too. A lot of people vented. I did, too. And, uh, you know, all I can say is compensation is read Lynn's book. I will. Because it's a great read. And um, it's spectacular. And uh, Lynn has become a great friend of mine. But I knew none of this at that point. So this was, you know, it, I, it was totally understandable that I wasn't going to be hired. And, you know, I mean, if if it was secretarial skills they were looking for and they were exactly right. I mean, they could read my mind. It was like I had a 
bubble over it saying, just give me this job and I'll be pushing on, you know, out of it soon. And, um, you know, they, they read it correctly. But the deal was that Harper's Bazaar had no such problem hiring me as a secretary. And so I took a day job working for Harper's Bazaar. And because my roommate was a production assistant with ABC Sports, she had the daily and the monthly schedule of all the events and all of the editing sessions, et cetera. So I might as well have been working for ABC Sports for all the hours that I just spent sitting in the back of editing studios over on uh, West 65th Street. You know, they would do layovers, um, uh, voiceovers with the um, announcers. So you'd have, you know, the announcers, you'd have Frank over there, Howard Cosell, you'd have Jim McKay. They would do the voiceovers for the produced shows. And I would just go over and sit and I'd get to know the producers, I'd get to know the directors. And they treated me like I was sort of working there. I mean, I can remember days, nights when they would send me out to a local bar across the street to get two martinis for Howard Cosell. So, (laughs) you know, finish his voiceover. And I loved it. I loved it. And I was learning so much and I was having a great fun. And then on weekends, I would go out and do events and they'd pay me $25 a day to be a gopher which literally means go for this, go for that. I'd be sitting up on the 18th hole of the U.S. Open with the announcer, the broadcaster there, you know, just doing the stats and getting whatever was needed. I was in heaven. I loved it. It was convincing me more and more that this is what I wanted to do. And lo and behold, it is still the best way to make, you know, to figure out what's next by meeting people. It's always the best way, networking, networking, networking. Because one of the producers, Jeff Mason, approached me one day and he said, you know, I'm friends with the people who are hiring over at Sports Illustrated. Would you be interested in possibly going over and doing an interview there for a job, you know, as a researcher, whatever, you know, entry level job? Mm -hmm. I said, yes, I would. (laughs) <laughs> and so um, he got me an, he got me an interview and I went over and brought my resume in and, you know, again, you know, explaining this resume. I mean, it has nothing really to do with sports. And so how, why are you here and what would you do? Anyway, I didn't get hired. I, you know, then I got this um, rejection letter in the mail and I put it up on my wall and I would look at it every morning. And that was just, you know, not acceptable because that was the job that I now had my heart set on. Mm -hmm. And so every time I would go out on assignment with ABC Sports somewhere for the next several months, I'd find a postcard, like from the U.S. Open or tennis tournament or something. And I would just send the postcard, you know, to the head of the research department at SI. Oh, I'm out at the U.S. Open or I'm out at this event and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and just pretending, you know, like I was doing all this amazing stuff. I mean, I was there. I was working as a gopher. But anyway, lo and behold, that September, about four months later, I get a call and they want me to come back in for another interview. They just lost uh, one of their reporters to World Tennis Magazine and they wanted to hire someone. And um, I got called back in. I met with the same person again. We went through the interview again and I got hired. (laughs) It was amazing. I mean, that was September of 1974. So that was about a year um, after I had made that first drive down myself, the first time I'd ever gone to New York by myself. 
And within a year, I had a job as a researcher at Sports Illustrated. And that was the beginning of what's been just kind of what I call a miraculous and stupendous life. Um, so how funny. So I I love so much about the story about how you ended up with your first actually hired <laughs> yeah, job. Actually hired. Um, but, you know, the networking thing we talk about a lot and it's how I got my first job in sports. Well, it, the job I have now is still my first job in sports, but you know how that happened. Um, it's how a lot of my guests have gotten that job and your, I just love this postcard thing. Now I could see how it would get maybe a little too much at times, maybe, but I also just love the, the, I don't know, ingenuity. Like you just like, we're like, I'm going to do something a little different than everyone else. And I, I mean, for people I've interviewed with in the past, I still keep in touch with them too, you know, and may, they're part of my network now. So of course I do. And it's just, it's really cool to hear that you did it that way. Um, and it makes me giggle because I'm just thinking of how great that would actually be now. Cause nobody ever gets anything in the real mail anymore. <laughs> Well, you know, for anyone who asks, and I, I try to, do, I try to, and do do a lot of mentoring of young people today. For whatever reason, a number of friends tend to send people my way, thinking that I still have all these contacts in journalism. Um, but I, while I may not have a lot of contacts left from my day, I do pass along that advice. I do remind them that actually the intimacy of the written word, and I mean the written word where you take a pen to paper yeah. and, and you actually buy a stamp uh, and you, you affix the stamp to what you have written on and you mail it to someone, that that draws their eyes to it in a way that no other of the media that you are using today will ever do. And, uh, you know, I just can't be encouraging enough of people actually writing letters. Um, so, it, you know, it feels old fashioned, but, you know, people have come back to me and said, you know, I'm so glad you said to do that because I actually heard back from this person who would never respond to the emails, et cetera. It just makes a difference. And I don't think it's just the oddity of it. Mm -hmm. I think there's something about the intimacy of seeing that handwriting, of knowing that one hand sat down and wrote what they wrote and made the effort to send it and mail it. That really makes a difference still today. I think it, it stands out. So, I, um, yeah, I agree. I, I, um, it's funny because in the legal world, if we take my legal yeah. part of me, you will see on, on career boards and like, um, forums, um, people are like, oh no, don't, don't do a handwritten thank you note. It makes you seem, you know, old fashioned. It's not timely. You could mess up. Um, and while, you know, I've always kind of watched that. I have always done handwritten thank you notes after interviews. Um, and I know for a fact that my last employer, one of the the men who ended up managing me, he actually had kept it. It was like something that he was like, it was just so above and beyond. And mm -hmm. he, he kept it. He's like, and it's what, you know, one of the reasons why you stood out and I do it to this day, it, you know, and then one of the things I've mentioned on here 
um, before is I have a habit. Uh, I started about, I don't know, a year or two ago of sending very random congratulations notes to people who in our industry, in the, in the sports industry, women who get like the top job of what it is that they're doing. Mm-hmm. And just a very, you know, I do it on my company's letterhead um, yep. and, you know, put my card in there. But it um, it's interesting, the responses that I get back, because so many people aren't expecting it. They don't know me. Why would I take time to do that? Right. But I feel like it's such a good way to keep encouraging. Right. And to just let people know that, you know, you see them. And so I get some very lovely notes back often. And um, it's how I've met a good number of people who are now in my general circle. Yeah. I, I, you know, whether it's old fashioned or not, it's a very um, human um, response. It's, it's, it takes away that, that sense of distance that I think machines being in the middle of human interactions can sometimes give that distancing sense. Um, so I, I, I don't know if it's old fashioned or not. I think it's just something that is human beings that we were sort of born to do. I mean, that we were born to interact with each other in some ways. I know I have a 21 year old daughter, um, And, you know, she rarely thinks about the idea of picking up a phone and actually calling someone. They hold the the phone in their hand all the time, but they never think of using it as a phone. And um, I just think there's something still about hearing someone's voice, the emotion that is in it, uh, the sense of being able to actually have a conversation instead of this kind of stilted back and forth that you get sometimes with text. it's something that I just think will never go out of style. So I, it's interesting to hear it be called old fashioned, but perhaps it is. Well, you know? I think in certain, listen, in the legal industry, um, there's not a lot of humanity generally, right? Mm-hmm. So there's that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think in the tech world, people feel like they have to be using the latest technology in order to be seen as competent. So I can see it in that area, too. But I don't know. I'm not giving it up. I don't care. <laughs> Good. Well, you know, you and I will be writing letters to each other. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we'll keep, we'll keep the postal service going. This episode is brought to you by our new partner, the Sports MBA Program at San Diego State University. If you've looked into attending graduate school to study sports business, you've seen that the marketplace is crowded with master's degrees in sports administration and sport management. Everywhere you look, there are certificates, online content, summer-only programs, and more. Since 2005, SDSU has offered something completely different, an on-campus intensive MBA program that's entirely focused on sports business. An accredited MBA from SDSU provides graduates with a much more versatile and in-demand degree that will be valuable in the sports industry. Students learn practical skills from expert faculty while getting hands-on industry experience in the robust Southern California sports landscape. The program was just ranked number one in the world for alumni satisfaction in the latest rankings by Sports Business International. Join the 124 prominent women who are leveling the playing field in sports business with a sports MBA from SDSU. Apply now for a January 2019 start date. 
So this first job, as you were a researcher, right? What did that entail? Okay, it's called a researcher reporter. I've gone back interestingly and looked on the masthead. It was always referred to as researcher reporter, but from a very you know several decades before uh, when Time was founded as a magazine in the 1920s. Uh, an editor at Time defined this job as really being a fact checker. Um, and that's what essentially our main function was designed to be. And consequently, as Lynn Povich discovered at uh, Newsweek and was the same at Time magazine at various Newsweeklies, there were clusters of women in that category. Uh, the editor at Time had very much defined it and, in fact, said in it, that it's a job in which women will find much pleasure and they'll find pleasure because their responsibility will be to take care of the men who are the writers and the editors and be sure that they clean their copy of all errors. Oh so once again, the job of the women was to be sure that none of the men made a mistake. Um, and that was essentially to my up to my day of being hired was essentially what we were. We were fact checkers. Now, by then, and because of the lawsuit that had started at Newsweek and then the gender discrimination at Time Inc., which was uh, which was uh, resolved with um, with the with the uh, assertion that Time would do a better job in hiring more women for higher level places, but also would hire men in the lower status jobs. So by then, we had a few men who were coming in through this researcher, a reporter researcher rank as well. Now, it is true that they were often taken out of that rank much faster than the women were. But that being said, when I arrived, that was the job. I learned that, you know, I was trained to fact check the stories that were given to me to fact check. That was essentially what I was doing. I was handed the copy that a writer had written and an editor had edited. And my job was to be sure that that copy, by the time it went to publication, I followed it all the way through, was free of errors. Well, you know, for me, that was a great training ground because I had not gone to journalism school. And I thought, wow, I mean, you know, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot, you know, about what is a reliable source how do you find the sources? How to use the library at the time? We didn't have, of course, the internet. Um, you know, picking up the phone, making calls to uh, sports information directors, uh, making calls to other sources. Um, it was really a valuable training ground for me. So I was perfectly happy for a period of time really learning the basics. Um, but then the words of Shirley Chisholm and others echoed in my head. And those words really made a difference to me. And the notion that we had these opportunities that no, no, no contingent of women had ever had as we came into, you know, this work environment in the 70s. It was a time when women were taking to the streets where there were conventions, where now was being formed. There was in the air this sense that we almost had an obligation to kind of keep running down the field here. Oh, my God. And, it sounds so familiar right now. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And so I, you know, I and I also remember, you know, Frank had given me a great compliment that I could talk sports. I knew it. And I had a confidence about it. So what I didn't have, obviously, what I did not know how to do and did not have was any sense of how to write 
a story for news. I mean, I'd written lots of research papers, et cetera, right? And I'd done fine in school. But that did not mean that I knew how to write, particularly a sports story. And I was at the leading, you know, sports magazine of the of the world, probably. So this notion that here I was and that I could learn to write for Sports Illustrated, um, it, you know, to me, I look back on it and think, who did you think you were? You know, but <laughs> it didn't matter. I was determined that I was not going to be just fact checking stories. I mean, I was going to learn how to report, you know, outside of the office. I was going to, you know, use my legs and go out. I had this opportunity. I was not going to not use it. And, you know, I was going to also try to find a mentor and try to begin to learn how to write. And so I was just determined that, you know, I, it was just I was not content uh, after a certain point with just doing what I was being paid to do. So I knew that to do this, it would mean, you know, that the job would become a 24-7 job. I mean, every bit of my life would be poured into learning these new skills. And that was all right. That was OK. So I'll just kind of uh, make it a little bit shorter here by saying that. I came in there and they had the illusion that I had worked, you know, for ABC Sports. I mean, it's not like I faked my resume, but, you know, there was this sense, oh, you came over from ABC Sports. And I would say, well, I did some, you know, go for work and blah, blah, blah. but they immediately after my training period was over, assigned me to the TV radio column. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, OK. So um, there was a wonderful, wonderful man named Bill Leggett who had. Um, taken over uh, running, writing this column. And it was essentially a page in the magazine every, almost every week. So we were, you know, we, and Bill clearly made me a we when I was assigned to this, he would, you know, talk about ideas and I would begin to get the sense of how do you shape a story? How do you begin to think about reporting it? And I'll tell you, Bobby, the great thing was that I didn't really realize at the time that all of our sources were in New York. So it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't as though I had to travel, you know, and kind of, you know, if I've been assigned to a sport, you know, I'd have to be out of the office and try to travel. And it was complicated. You have to be back to fact check stories this way. All the networks were in New York. And that was what we were mainly covering is sort of what was going on at the networks with sports. And there was a lot going on. So Bill would include me in his story idea meetings. He would take me along you know, for these reported interviews that he would do. So I would learn how interviews were done. Uh, he would ask me to do certain research that he needed to kind of buttress his ideas or his column. It was a great training ground. It was phenomenal. And here I was, the irony, you know, that I would be going along with him on interviews over to ABC Sports and sitting there as a reporter, you know, in the offices of these people who had not hired me, you know, two years before. And now I was officially there working for Sports Illustrated, reporting on them. So, I mean, it was kind of fun. It was kind of fun. And um, so the next layer that happens is that I start coming up with ideas that I take to Bill and say, how about doing this? Or how about this story? And he was fantastic. He'd say, oh, I love that idea. Why don't you go out and see what you can do to develop it? And let's see if that can work, et cetera, et cetera. And before long, he was letting me just say, go and try to write it. You know, he'd say, you've done a good reporting on this. It's ready to go. Try to write it. He was so generous and so supportive. 
And so within, I think, uh, within a year, I think I had my first byline, you know, as a column in the TV radio section. What a great um, mentor, uh, especially at a amazing. at a, yeah. a period of time where, you know, you still had a lot of antagonism from men in the news sec- sector um, towards women getting their jobs. Yeah, I mean, Bill was phenomenal. I, I couldn't have asked for a better start. I just couldn't have. Um, and so, you know, as I stayed on the TV radio beat, I began to set my sort of sights on uh, baseball. Again, I go back to my mother's love for baseball, which clearly had manifested itself in me. And uh, baseball at that time, again, younger people won't get this, but baseball was the national pastime. It was the sport that drove, you know, sports. That was what, what was the king of sports. The NFL was on its ascendancy but it had not yet become the dominant sport that it is today. And the NBA and the NHL were definitely, you know, the sort of uh, second tier sports. And that was traditionally what women covered. Um, you know, Jane Gross had covered the NBA. Robin Herman covered the NHL. Lori Mifflin covered hockey. Helene Elliott covered hockey. You know, I can name the people who were the pioneers, and most of them were on hockey and basketball because that's where they put their one-woman reporter. It was like, you know, if you played softball in the Publishers League, which I did, there were certain positions that you put your women at. You had to have four women, you know, so they ended up at second base, short center field, sometimes catcher, sometimes pitcher, right? So, you know, you knew what you were going to be. But no woman covered baseball full time. No woman. And I loved baseball. So I kind of took on um, the gritty part of it, the fun part that wasn't that much fun at first, just to prove my mettle in this. So I did what are called the baseball books. And that would mean going through the newspaper every single day and by hand going through every box score of every game and inputting by hand onto a spreadsheet um, all of the stats that we needed to have ready to hand over to our writer on Sunday morning so that he could write the week in baseball. Oh my and God. Every, everything had to be right, everything. And so it was like an Excel sheet, but it was all done by hand. You know, and it was laborious. It took a long time to input all of that information every day on every game. But again, you know, I wanted to show people that I was serious. I wanted to do this beat. I would do the kind of laborious work. That was fine. So for a while, I was kind of balancing both of those. And then a woman named Stephanie Salter, who had been the junior baseball reporter. There were always two reporters on baseball because it was such a major sport. Um, and Stephanie left because she wanted to write and she wasn't getting the opportunity at Sports Illustrated as most women weren't. And so she left and she had a very successful career out in San Francisco. She became a columnist out there and, um, you know, just wrote phenomenal stuff. Terrific. So Stephanie left. And by the end of the 76 season, I had been officially named as her replacement on the baseball beat. So that was when I start transitioning away from the TV radio column, where by then I'd probably written maybe eight, eight or nine columns. I mean, it was incredible. Bill was just a, a dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I owe him a lot. Um, 
And so I then entered the world of being a baseball beat reporter. And um, just to go back to what I was saying earlier, at that point, my life became 24-7 baseball. I mean, after a full day at work, which was eight hours, you know, or so, I would get on the subway and I would go to either Shea Stadium or Yankee Stadium, you know, for a night game. And I wouldn't finish that night game until, you know, maybe 1130 or midnight. I'd be riding the subway back to the city by myself. I wasn't paid anything to be at those games. It was a learning experience. What I was doing was actually standing around and watching and learning how the men were doing their reporting and learning baseball reporting just by being there. And, you know, scoring the games and just being around talking baseball, learning how to talk the game, learning what you needed to know. And um, I did that for two full seasons, um, gaining a little bit of more access, um, you know, along the way and gaining in confidence along the way and actually starting to write some of the um, baseball columns. So, um, you know, it was all happening, but all gradually. And I was, you know, really willing to pay the dues necessary to to really learn it. Um, I wasn't there as an ornament. I really wanted to learn how to do this. When, so we get, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, while you were doing this, um, I, I've seen um, you talk about how you, or in an article I saw, how you chose your clothing oh, for yes. this. Yes. So <laughs> can you can you talk a little bit about that before we go on to the the big sure. event? Sure. Um, you know, I was very aware as really often the only woman in the press box and the only woman on the field before the game, you know, talking with ball players. that there were two things that I really felt very strongly that I had to do. I had to present myself as someone who was very serious about my work. I was not there, um, you know, to flirt with the ball players. I certainly wasn't there looking for a date. I was there to do a job just like the men, even if I didn't look like them. So even though I never took to the kind of suits with the little fake ties and stuff, I did feel very strongly that I had to choose my outfits carefully. I wasn't about to go up there in something that was uh, a bit of a sort of maybe a sexy outfit. That wasn't uh, that wasn't something that I really was going to feel comfortable with at all. And by that, I mean that I basically got a um, closet full of Laura Ashley dresses, which is about as prim and lacy and, uh, you know, feminine <laughs> as you can be, you know, and covers that top part. There's no cleavage. In fact, it very much sort of flattens the top of you. <laughs> and then I would always wear, you know, flats. A, it was much more comfortable on a field. You weren't going to sink your high heels into it. Right. I was very conscious of that. And the other advantage of Laura Ashley dresses is that they came down basically to the knee or a little below the knee. It wasn't a mini skirt, you know, that I was wearing again. I mean, you know, I had a decent figure, but it wasn't to show off at that point. And so I knew that every time I crossed my legs in the dugout to sit with players that, you know, my dress would be, you know, not visible where you could kind of look into my dress, but it would be over my knee. So I was very, very conscious of this. Um, and the second thing that went with that, which wasn't about dressing, but it's the same notion of the kind of fashion that I chose, 
And that is that I really worked hard to be sure that when I asked my first question of a ball player on a given day, that that question was a smart question. It wasn't mm -hmm. a dumb question. It wasn't dumb because it really, I had to make a very quick and very certain impression with them that I was there because I was serious, that I actually wanted an answer from them and that I could was conversant, you know, in this game. So it really um, required homework. I didn't just sort of toss out a question just to toss it out. Now, you know, in retrospect, did I did I overthink all of this? Maybe I did. But, you know, I was I was on my own up there. I was on my own and I was the only one. And I just really felt that I stood out. Maybe I was more self-conscious about it than I should have been. But, um, you know, all players are going to talk amongst each other. You know, and if you don't make a good impression with one, who knows what's going to be said when they get back in the locker room about you. Um, I, I've had this yeah. discussion with um, other journalists. Um, Laura Oakman was our last guest and we and she's an NFL sideline reporter, yeah, all of sure. that. She's great. Yeah. Um, and she's like, we as women have to be perfect. Men can have a bad day. But as women in this role, if we make a mistake, we're dumb men. They had a bad day and it, that still prevails, unfortunately. Um, but I, I, but I think you like you taking into account the, your appearance, I think at that time was really smart because it took away some of the ammunition that may have been thrown at you, which was already thrown at you anyway, when we get to, to the lawsuit, but you know, it, it kind of toned it down a little bit. Yeah. It made me more comfortable, but I also was very aware that I just didn't want to be perceived, um, in a way that, um, that would make me uncomfortable and would make it more difficult for other women as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so it just was a choice, you know, that I made very early on of, of just recognizing when I was going to go to the ballpark for an evening. I made sure that what I wore that morning was uh, was uh, was fitting of the uh, circumstances that I would be in. So then you get assigned uh, to the Yankees beat during the World Series. I do during the series and not in 76, but in 77. And okay. yeah. yeah. And so talk a little bit about how at that time, if you were a male reporter, the type of access that you would get. Well, you know, we can step back a little, Bobby Sue, because I think it might be interesting for people to know that prior to the 1977 World Series, where you're right, I was assigned by the magazine to cover my first World Series. And boy, was I excited. That was just like, <laughs> whoa. I mean, this is amazing. Uh, but during that season, 77, remember, we're now in sort of my second season or, you know, we're getting through that season. And a lot of the time that I'd spent was at Yankee Stadium. They were one heck of a team to be around. There were dramas throughout the season. I mean, there was never a lack of an interesting story going on up there between Reggie Jackson, Billy Martin, George Steinbrenner, you know, Thurman <laughs> Munson. I mean, and, and they were winning, 
you know, so it was it was really quite amazing. So I was around the Yankees a lot. And so Mickey Morabito, who was the uh, first year PR person and very interestingly, my same age. And that made a difference because a lot of these PR people for the teams had been around forever and they just they, they weren't eager to have us as women, you know, me and others show up. But, you know, Mickey was my age and he was always very, very, you know, open to me coming to him with challenges that I was that I was facing. And he he watched. He knew what was going on and knew some of my my difficulties. So by midseason, by midseason that year, he had come to me and said, listen, you know, I've seen I know that you're having a hard time here. Why don't you go over around to the side door of the clubhouse? And he pointed it out to me and he said, I will come in through the door. I'll open that door for you. And after games, you can go into Billy's office. He and Billy Martin were very close and Billy was fine with it. And so by midseason, I was going in the side entrance and going into Billy's office, just the manager's office. And of course, then there was a door at the end of that corridor that went into the locker room, which I never went through. But I was delighted because suddenly I had this front row seat that I hadn't had. And, you know, you can learn a lot just by the questions the other reporters come in and ask Billy that they've, you know, come in from the locker room. And they're kind of bringing something that a player has said. So I'm getting a lot of the feel for what's happening that I'd never had access to before because I'd been kept out of the entire clubhouse. So we go ahead about maybe six or eight weeks. So we're coming to the end of the season. And, you know, Mickey had been great. Billy had been great. You know, no one, none of the guys, they saw me in there, the other reporters. And even though they weren't wild about having me around, no one seemed, no one wrote about it. It wasn't a big deal, you know, and it was my gradualist approach. I thought, you know, let's just take this slow and, you know, let people get used to it. And here we go. So at the end of that season, the last two games of the season, Mickey comes up and hands me a clubhouse pass. Clubhouse pass with my name on it, Sports Illustrated, hmm. access access to the clubhouse. And I thought, wow, I mean, that's, that's wonderful. Let's see. Okay. So, um, you know, again, the go slow approach that I wanted to take, I went in and used that uh, pass just before the game, not after the game. Before the game, when the players just come off of batting practice, they're still in their uniforms. And I went in, and that's a time where you have about 35, 40 minutes, and you can just talk to them. And that's the time that I really needed as a magazine reporter. So I went in for those two games. And again, no one wrote about it. There was no uproar, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, again, I really liked this gradualist approach. I wasn't banging on the door. I was just kind of taking it easy as we went along. So we get to the American League Championship Series. and. You know, I did the same. I mean, basically just took it slow in, in Billy's office, et cetera. So that's where I wanted to kind of just set the groundwork for thinking about the 77 World Series, because I, you can see that my gradualist approach under the radar, making it work for people, you know, not barging in was really working. Mm -hmm. It was really working and I felt good about it. So when we come up to the 1977 World Series and the Dodgers are coming to town, I'm figuring that the Yankees are fine. 
you know, everything's been working well. You know, what? there's nothing to talk about over there. So on the um, workout day, I approached Tommy Lasorda, who I'd gotten to know the season before um, through a project I was doing with Roger Kahn, got to meet um, Tommy Lasorda, so he knew me. Anyway, Tommy Lasorda I approached, and I wanted to see if I could just do the thing with him and the manager, right? I mean, that was my goal. Because we had another reporter, I thought if I can get the Yankees Clubhouse and Tommy Lasorda, I'm fine. Then other people can handle the rest. I wasn't, you know, I was just, again, trying to do it in a way that would not ruffle feathers. Tommy Lasorda wanted nothing to do with it. Oh, God. <laughs> he, he handed me off like I was a hot potato to uh, Tommy John, who was his player rep, who was a pitcher. But Tommy John was incredibly uh, kind and generous. And we sat down in the dugout and he took a look at my press pass. My press pass said I had access to the clubhouse. He looked at it and he said, you know, he said, you have every right to be there. But he said, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back and let the team know we've never had a woman covering us. It would be a surprise to a lot of them if you show up. And I'd like to just kind of talk it through with them and, you know, maybe have them take a vote and get a sense of the of the team. And I thought that sounds reasonable. Mm -hmm. I didn't say don't do that. I said, that sounds reasonable. Fine. You know. Um, And so he said, listen, just meet me before tomorrow night's game, which was the first game of the series. And so we get there. And um, as the uh, Dodgers are finishing their workout. He comes back and meet, meets me next to the screen near the near the stands, sort of away from the other reporters. And he says to me, he says, you know, it wasn't unanimous, but after we talked it through, I mean, the players understand you've got a job to do and it's fine with them. Come on in. Thank you for giving us a heads up. Very courteous, very straightforward. And I start walking away and he calls me back. He says, hey, by the way, he said, listen, I got to go in the clubhouse now. Would you go find Steve Brenner, who was their PR person? And would you let Steve know that we've had this conversation and this is how it's come out, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I didn't know Steve Brenner at all. So I just start looking around for him, asking people if they'd seen him. And I finally find him in a corridor and I go up and I explain to him what happens. He looks like a ghost. I mean, he is just like (laughs) pale. And he barely, barely says a word to me and clicks his heels and walks away. And I thought, okay, whatever. And so I head off and have my dinner and hang out and uh, take my seat in the auxiliary press box. We had four of us from Sports Illustrated covering the series. So we had one writer up in the main press box and three of us downstairs. And about the fifth inning or so, I hear what I think is my name being called in the loudspeaker. It's sort of a surprise. But when it repeats itself, I know that I've been called up to the main press box. So when I go up there, I get up there, I'm greeted at the back door by Mickey Morabito, which, you know, I thought, okay, you know, here's my friend and, you know, what's up? And Mickey looks very stern and pulls me over into the bed, not pulls, but I mean, leads me over into the very back of the press box away from where the other reporters are and basically says to me, you're not allowed in either clubhouse. The commissioner is saying, you know, you're not, you're not allowed in. And I, you know, we, this goes on for a while. I'm, I'm writing my memoir now and I play this scene out, you know, and just my amazement that I'm hearing this from of all people, Mickey Morbido. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I'm just dumbfounded. And I just, I can't understand why it's happened. I, I, you know, I think I've done everything more than everything right in terms of how to handle it. It is again, like, not like I've just barged in, um, you know, sort of done a mother, mother may I, father may I kind of thing um, as women do. And um, here this is happening. So I'm not satisfied with this answer. And I tell him I want to speak with the commissioner. He says, that's not possible. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but he says oh, you can speak to his lieutenant who, you know, his, his second in command, who's head of media, Bob Weirs. And he walks me down the press box, introduces me to Bob. I start talking to Bob. He does not like that I'm talking to him in front and the other reporters are nearby. So he walks me back up the stairs to the back region of the press box where, you know, we're kind of in a silent little box here. And he starts explaining that, um, no, I mean, the commissioner, I mean, he, I'm banned from both clubhouses, both managers' offices, and uh, this is going to last forever. I mean, there's not going to be any appeal, et cetera, et cetera, and blah, 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 and that's it. And, um, yeah, go ahead. Did they, was there any, aside from because you're a woman or because I said so, was there any rationale provided at that point? Like, nope, we've decided this because. Well, that wasn't explained to me, but I did ask. I mean, I, I stayed there. I made him, um, admit, first of all, I made him admit that it was because I'm a woman. Mm -hmm. There was part of me that knew that I had to get that on the record. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I wasn't at that point thinking lawsuit. This had happened to me so many times that, you know, I hadn't been able to get to a player or whatever that, you know, it was customary, but it was yet not. There was something different about this event that was happening. So I pressed him and I said, you know, why, why is, why, why, why is this decision being made? And he said he gave two reasons. He said, one is that we haven't pulled the wives to find out their opinion. <laughs> they've always cared about what the wives think. Well, that was exactly, Bobby, so you should have been with me as my attorney. That's, exa <laughs> that's exactly what I said. I said, for, can you give me an example of when you have questioned the wives about a policy that you have with media? And he couldn't. And then I said, is there another reason? He said, yes. He said, we also know that if this were to happen and you were to go into the locker room, we are concerned that the children, the classmates of the children will ridicule them in their classrooms because of this. For what? What? Because that doesn't even make logical sense. Um, it was said. OK, yeah. I'm not I'm not verifying that it's logical. I'm not, <laughs> I'm, not I'm not even testifying that it's yeah. logical. But I was asked to write a, uh, a memo and a letter to the commissioner uh, by my editor on the Thursday after this happened. And that is exactly what is in that memo. And that's my contemporary memory of exactly what was said. So that one, as I write in my memoir, I just, I didn't know how to respond. <laughs> there wasn't any response. So it was pretty clear to me that, that this was not going to change that evening. Um, now, I will tell you that what seems odd to me now, but did not seem odd to me then, and I can go back in my time machine and know exactly why I responded as I did. And that is that I never called my editor to talk about this happening. I never spoke about it to anyone else. I never told the three other writers who were there that night from Sports Illustrated what had happened. I just went back to my seat, 
I then, after the game, went to the large interview room where they bring out a few chosen players. I kind of did what I could do in terms of reporting that night. And then I just went home. And I never called my editor the two days. We had two days off from work on Tuesday and Wednesday. And that happened to be when the two games were being played. And I never did. I never called him. And the reason that I didn't is because I had been on my own wrestling with all of these issues for two years. No one at the magazine had ever asked me if I had access. No one at the magazine had ever wondered about the challenges I had. No one at the magazine had ever said, how did you get this reporting or how did you do it? No one ever asked. And at that time, and again, you have to use your time machine to go back. When you are the only woman doing a man's job, you do not complain. You just say, I am really lucky I have this job. And if I start complaining and whining, I can look down the row of offices and I can damn well tell you that someone else is going to be doing my job. Well, it was probably humiliating, too. And you don't want to have, you know. I don't know that it was that humiliating, but it was, you know, it was odd because by then I was also covering the NBA. And so during the winter in the NBA, I was in the locker rooms. And then back to baseball, I'm not. And again, no editor ever said to me, you know, well, you're in the locker rooms in the NBA and what's the situation up there in baseball? Never had the conversation. And, you know, my attitude, which I think was the attitude of a lot of women, we just knew we had to suck it in and do the best we could. So I'll give you an example, okay? If I can't get into the locker room and interview Reggie Jackson, what did I do? I found Reggie out in the field one day and I said, hey, Reggie, you know, when you drive up to the stadium, can I get a ride with you every so often? So I would meet him up at his, um, you know, up on Fifth Avenue and 79th Street where he lived. He would pull his Rolls Royce out of the garage under his building. I would jump in and we'd have a half an hour in the Rolls Royce driving up to the Bronx. Oh, my God. So you just figure out other ways to do it. You know you have a job to do. And so whatever they tell you you have to do, you'll figure out how to do it because that's what women do. Yeah. And the men above you, the editors and all of that, it doesn't even really cross their mind that you might have an issue because they would never have an issue. So it probably didn't even hit them. And I'm turning this stuff in. I never failed to do the reporting that they asked me to do. I always found a way. And oftentimes it would mean, for example, if I couldn't get a player to come out of the locker room after batting practice to sit with me and talk in the dugout, if he wouldn't come out, and a lot of times they wouldn't, I would send a reporter who was friendly in and ask them to ask them to come out. You'd never know if they were going to or not, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I'd spend a lot of time. And oftentimes they wouldn't come out. So you know what that meant? If I wasn't intending to go to the game the next day, I had to go to the game the next day because I hadn't gotten him that day. So, you know, it took a lot more hours. It took a lot more ingenuity. It took a lot of creativity. But, you know, you just figure out a way to do it. You figure out a way to do it. But the last thing you want to do is complain and whine. So, you know, on Thursday, I go into the office because that's when the office, when we're supposed to be in and the teams are going to L.A. I am not going to L.A. because I'm the reporter held back to fact check the stories. And, um, you know, immediately my editor calls me into his office, Pete Carey, and says, hey, what's going on up at the stadium? 
Jane Gross gave me a call and said she heard word that something's happening up there with you. What's going on? (laughs) And so I tell him. And, uh, you know, to his credit at that point, his immediate response is we need to do something about this. And he goes to the managing editor and says, I want to, you know, I want to start talking to baseball. Here's what's happened. The managing editor says, go do whatever you need to do. And so that's when um, the two sides began to negotiate. And um, by the time the teams return to the East Coast, where I'm going to rejoin them at Yankee Stadium, it's game six. And um, part of the negotiations had led to an arrangement that baseball was going to make for me that night that I'm told about that afternoon by my attorney. And that's what I call in my memoir, my night with my male escort. And um, that was one of the, a PR guy from one of the teams, Larry Shank, and he was assigned to me. And his job at the end of that game was to be right with me wherever I wanted to be, whichever clubhouse. And his job was to go into that clubhouse and retrieve a players for me so that I could talk to them. Oh, my well, God. that had that that plan had a lot of flaws in it. Um, one flaw was that, of course, that game became the game that was the winning game for the Yankees. So I was standing outside in this corridor where reverberating sounds were coming, bouncing off of the concrete all around me. It was deafening. Uh, you know, while I watched everyone who didn't have a pass, uh, you know, who was a male go into that clubhouse that night. Um, I was forced to stay outside in this clamorous area where people were just screaming and sending Larry Shank in to say, hey, I'd like to talk to Reggie. Reggie, after all, was the one who hit the three home runs, wasn't he? And um, of course, Reggie was not going to come out and talk to me. I mean, you know, everyone was surrounding him in there and the awards were being given in there. And in fact, there was a TV camera in the locker room. So there were women throughout America that were watching what was happening in the clubhouse, and I wasn't in there. Oh my God. So, so that plan had a number of flaws, um, which, to his credit, Larry, I think, had an education himself that night, and he became a proponent <laughs> of equal access after that experience. Uh, we tried going around to the side door. I said at one point, Larry, let's just go out of this area. Let's go around to the side door, see if maybe I can get in there. Maybe I can go into Billy's office, whatever. Yeah. And we went around there and they had two guards on that door. It was usually unguarded. And when they saw it was me, they slammed it in my face. And that was that. So oh, my it was, God. It was, it was not a very good night. Um, so, but it was, that was their accommodation. That was their separate but equal uh, notion, which, uh, you know, had a test run and failed. And again, I was asked to write kind of a memo about that experience. So, um Anyway, negotiations between baseball then went on for about two and a half, three months, because, you know, I I don't think Time Inc. and Sports Illustrated wanted to take it to court. I didn't. I mean, I wasn't even thinking about that at the time. Frankly, I thought we'll figure something out here, Um, you know, but I wasn't involved in any of the negotiations. I was never brought into any of the meetings. It was all done by the guys. And that, you know, that was fine. The attorneys were arguing back and forth and trying to figure it out. But by November, I guess it was becoming increasingly clear to Sports Illustrated that baseball and Commissioner Q in particular was just uh, adamant and he was not going to bend. And um, evidently he had not read Brown versus Board of Education, the separate but equal uh, decision, because he kept contending that 
separate accommodations for women would be equal. And we kept saying, no, that is not um, true. That is not the case. Uh, you know, he was a University of Virginia graduate, law school graduate, Princeton graduate, went to a white shoe law firm, had been a lawyer. But uh, that concept, that constitutional concept evidently escaped him. Um, so by the end of December or by December, I was called in and, and they asked me if they went ahead with a lawsuit, would I, you know, be the plaintiff in it? And that's why the suit is Ludke versus Kuhn. And that became the lawsuit that was filed on December 29th of 1977. And um, it was uh, resolved about nine months later, September 25th, 1978, the decision came down in our favor after a volley of, uh, you know, uh, of affidavits and depositions, a uh, two-hour court hearing in April, an attempt by the judge to get the the parties to come back around a table so she would not have to adjudicate it. But that was unsuccessful. And um, in the end, she voted, she ruled in our favor on constitutional grounds with the Equal Protection Clause. If you're like me, you're in the middle of four books and you have another five that you haven't even opened. I don't have enough time to read them all and I just want to. Well, our new sponsor, Blinkist, has solved my problem and your problem probably um, once and for all. Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of the best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements so you can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes all on your phone. With Blinkist, you'll expand your knowledge and learn more in just 15 minutes than you can in almost any other way. Plus, you can listen anywhere. I like to listen to Blinkist while I'm driving to work or driving home from work. And the Blinkist library is massive, from timeless classics like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People to current Amazon bestsellers like You Are a Badass, How to Stop Doubting Your Greatness and Start Living Life. My personal recommendation is to check out The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, A Counterintuitive Approach to Living a Good Life. That is a real book and it is great. Blinkist is constantly curating and adding new titles from best of lists, so you're always getting the most powerful ideas in a made-for-mobile format. Five million people are using Blinkist to expand their minds 15 minutes at a time. Get started now. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash playing to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist. Dot com slash playing to start your free seven day trial. You can cancel at any time. Blinkist.com slash playing. Commissioner Kuhn was pretty much just not the best commissioner when it came to equal rights and and stuff like that generally. Um, you know, he was the commissioner that Kurt Flood was under and all, you know. Everything, anybody, uh, yeah. all of that. Um, you know, but Bobby Sue, I'm going to say just one thing in, in a little bit in his defense. I, I'm going to say for a moment that he was a man of his time and he was a man of his circumstance. You know, he had gone to Princeton University when it was all male and virtually all white. He had gone to the University of Virginia Law School when it was all male and all white. Yeah. Okay. it wasn't until he graduated that the famous lawsuit happened. That next uh, fall was their admission of the first black male 
to the University of Virginia Law School, and only after that were women admitted. His life had been lived in that bubble of privilege and patriarchy. And when he went directly from the University of Virginia Law School, he went to a white shoe law firm in Manhattan, where he ended up being assigned as the attorney for the National Baseball League. So once again, he was in a world only inhabited by men. Mm -hmm. The only women he would have ever seen would have been the secretarial pool at that law firm. So this was his, this was how he saw the world. Now, I'm not going to say it was right, right, but I do think that it's worth at least understanding the context and sort of the barriers that, you know, women faced back then because they were facing a sort of a power structure that was really raised in a very patriarchal world that just had no acquaintance with this idea Mm -hmm. of women um, holding an equal status. Um, So it really isn't a defense of him, but it's an explanation. Sure. I think of him that I think, you know, I'm going to try in my book certainly to bring that out because I think it's very important for people to know that, to not just say he's, you know, a, you know, a, a sexist. There's a reason that he held on to the view so, so adamantly that he did. Anyway. No, you're right. You're right. And I'm, (laughs) I'm quick to judge, I guess. Um, I, you know, it, let's just say that when I was reminding myself, you know, because I've taken sports law classes and da, 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 da. So I had obviously heard, knew about you and your case years and years and years and years ago before a podcast was even a thing. And I was, you know, when I was trying to remember who the commissioner was and then I was reminded, it it just wasn't surprising to me that it was. No, no, it it wasn't. It wasn't. And and later on, I found um, gone back to the Daily Princetonian or and looked up in their archives under him and found that, you know, after he was commissioner, he went back there and he really gave a lot of lectures um, at Princeton. And he talks about his extraordinary Catholic faith also, mm. you know, coming a very strong element of his life. So you have that yeah. sort of in the mix as well. So I've really tried to explore and understand as much as I can through his own words and sort of who he was. I, you know, it was sort of a very, um, it was a very, uh, you know, David and Goliath kind of feel to me back then. It was like this nasty man you know, kind of blocking, you know, me and understanding, you know, that we had a case and we were going to fight him and we were going to beat him. But, you know, the ripening of age and really trying to think through how to present this story now to people who weren't living then and weren't part of it. I've tried to come back into that time time period and, and understand more. His attorney, Jesse Clemenko, same era, same era. And some of the things that came out of his mouth at the hearing, you know, Judge Constance <laughs> Baker Motley was just incre- just incredulous, incredulous, yeah. you know, that he could actually think, you know, these these things and say them, um, you know. So, it, it, but it was a different era. These men were just uh, just living in a very different uh, bubble. Yeah. Different, no, yeah. and I think that that makes a great journalist, right? Somebody who, even though it's her own story, is able to to kind of pull yourself out of it and try and get to all sides. And, 
and get the background and the, I don't know, the, the, the color, you know, of how somebody becomes who they are, um, or gets to, you know, this position of power and, and then utilizes it that way. I think that that's what makes you a good journalist. Well, I have one other one other little story. Frank DeFord, who was uh, just one of my great great contemporaries at, at Sports Illustrated, just enormous pleasure to uh, work with him. He edited some stories uh, when he fell in as a summer editor, and I wrote some baseball columns with him. Just uh, an amazing guy. As people got to know him through NPR, et cetera. But um, around this time, when I was uh, getting involved in this lawsuit, he had done a, a, a four-part series or a big, long series. He wrote a lot of the feature stories. And he'd gone out and he talked to and sort of profiled all four of the commissioners at the time, Pete Rozelle and Bowie Kuhn and, you know, the NBA and whatever. And so he'd done this story. And Frank always had this thing. You know how Barbara Walters would end her interviews by saying, if you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be or something? Sure. You know, OK. So Frank's Frank's uh, thing with each of the commissioners, you know, he didn't ask them all exactly the same questions, but he had one question at the end. And he asked them each to talk about what they slept in or didn't sleep in. Okay. And each of the commissioners answered, you know, whether it was pajamas or just the bottoms of their pajamas or naked, whatever they did. Okay. They all answered. Bui Kuhn refused to answer, refused to tell Frank what he slept in. <laughs> and that, that tells me a lot about this yeah. man that, you know, it's just, he was so uncomfortable with this notion of nakedness and nudity. Whereas he and then he made it sort of center stage in this morality play about me as though I was the one who wanted to see all these players naked, you know, et cetera. Whereas that was the farthest thing from it. And so I my my retort was, you know, well, if that's the issue, then let me in before the game because there's no one naked then they're in their uniforms. So where is nudity in this? Anyway, I often will do a kind of a PowerPoint presentation now when people ask me to speak about it. And I sort of begin the talk by saying this was never about nudity. And I start going back through the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, et cetera. And, and you know, it goes along pretty quickly. But my point is that along the way, women were kept out of, you know, off the field for the interviews. They were kept out of the press box. They weren't allowed to eat with the sports writers. I mean, there were all sorts of things that they were excluded from. And so this idea that the exclusion was about nudity is not true. It was about sort of this final, final barrier that they just did not want to let go of. Because once they did, they lost their, they lost you know, like it's the boys with the treehouse, you know, and they're pulled the ladder up and say, no, the girls can't come in. And if they, you know, let me into this final place, it was going to sort of, from their perspective, be sort of the end of it all. There was going to be this stampede of women who were going to kind of show up. And anyway, so you'd learn a lot just by learning that he refused to answer what he slept in. That tells you a lot about him. Yeah, it really does. I mean, I always find, you know, I love when in history, a lot of it's like, oh, we must protect the women's eyeballs from seeing, you know, the naked male form or or like they're, you know, 
putting on to us projecting, that's the word I'm thinking of projecting onto, onto women, why they would want to go into a female's locker room. And I mean, at no point in life has a woman ever been like, yes, let me please see a whole bunch of random penises. Like it's just never happened because it, it just doesn't, it's not how we think. Like let us do our jobs. Let us move forward. Right. Men, they're, they're kind of creepy sometimes. And well, you, you've said it better than, than I could have said it, but that's where I was exactly headed because they were really projecting onto us. And this happened time and time and time again. You could almost write these men's columns about this topic because they would say two things. They would say two things always. They would always say, if if she can go into the men's uh, baseball locker room, can we go and see Chrissy Everett in her locker room? Okay, so that was this whole notion, (laughs) which that's Um, how it works. (laughs) That's I mean, and so this projection and, you know, I would basically, you know, and then then the second thing was this morality play that they wanted to to put out that I must be a bad woman because what good woman would want to go in and leer and lurk, you know, in the locker room at these men and see them naked. So it was all put back on me. You know, that 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 that, you know, a towel wrapped around them wasn't a solution that it was really about me right. wanting to see them naked. And it was like, you're exactly right. Let's just look at what sells. I mean, Playboy <laughs> and Playboy and Penthouse did not have male centerfolds. Um, you know, this is just not what women, you know, would like to be doing. And then when Playgirl um, did come out, by the way, it was mostly gay men buying it. So, yeah, I mean. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, it just, it was just, uh, and, and it was just they just couldn't couldn't get it. And it was just so predictable. It was almost comical how predictable <laughs> these things were. You know, there are cartoons where they will show a bedraggled, you know, sports reporter holding a newspaper that talks about my case. And they're at the door of the Dallas cheerleaders. OK, you know, it was all about the men thinking and fantasizing that they wanted to go into these locker rooms to see women. So anyway, it was it was really a, a quite a spectacle to um, to watch, you know, what this was made out to be in terms of its coverage. It, you know, it, it's in a very different way. It makes me think of something that happened this past week in women's tennis um, oh, yeah. at the Open where one of the women realized her shirt was on backwards, um, lifted it up to turn it around. I don't even think she fully took it out um, over her head. She obviously had a sports bra on and she ended up getting penalized for that. Guys, um, like this, when I was watching Serena's game or trying to watch Serena and Venus on Friday night, they still had a men's game going on. And one of the men takes his shirt off and is just hanging out on the court. And it's not a big deal. I mean, this perpetual need to, you know, I don't know. It's it's crazy to me. I I know it's not a total connect, but it's just living in my mind as a connection. No, I get it. You know, Billie Jean King uh, chimed in on Twitter and uh, she was exactly right. You know, let's stop objectifying women. And, you know, I may putting this on women. I mean, let's just stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. 
So, no, I, I mean, Billie Jean King is great on Twitter. I, I, I really she's, love her and I love yeah. her voice. I love that she's still part of this conversation and she is just uh, out there just saying it like it is. And um, there was a lot of coverage on that. And I think actually it was good to have that coverage because um, we we still do this. We still do this. And yet what I love about the younger athletes today, you know, the, especially like the the women gymnasts, for example, um, uh, who posed in Sports Illustrated yep. in their uh, swimsuit issue. And they did it and said, you know what? You can say you can criticize us for doing this. But what we're doing is we are showing you what a body of an athlete looks like. This yep. is an athlete. And we are proud of what we've done with our bodies. I think, and we're, yeah. you know, I think yeah. you're talking about Ali Raisman. And after yeah, and, all the NASAR stuff with the body issue she was in it and people were like well how you know if you go about looking like that for the public how can you advocate i mean just victim shaming and slut shaming all at the same time when there's literally nothing worth shaming in that sense i mean none at all what i love is that these these younger women just will have none of it. I mean, they're basically just willing to say, listen, this is empowering to me and it's empowering to show you this body. I'm not, I'm not displaying it in a way that is sexually, you know, uh, enticing. I am showing you what a muscular trained athletic body looks like, you know, Mm -hmm. on a woman and I'm proud of it. And it's like, you know, I, I think back to, um, you know, to my time back in the seventies and, how um, frightened I was, you know, to kind of speak back. And there wasn't really a mechanism. There wasn't social media. I couldn't respond to every column that there was. But I just didn't feel empowered to respond to the characterizations of me. I kind of just absorbed them and kind of took them in. And, you know, I didn't like it, but um, it was just sort of, I felt like it was just sort of part of what I had to go through. And I look at younger sports writers today and younger women, and what I really am um, so grateful for is that they just don't put up with it. And oh they, have found, they have found ways to respond that are respectful, and yet they're very, very hard-edged, and mm-hmm. they, will, they will tell it like it is, and they will basically say, stop it. Yep. But some of my you favorites know? are Julie DeCaro and Sarah Spain. I mean- those two yep. women alone, like it, you will either get a very sarcastic quote tweet from one of them or something that's just along the lines of, I feel really bad for you <laughs> that you, yeah. you know, feel yeah. the need. I mean, and I know those two women in particular, I know have received so much vitriol and, and so many disgusting comments and, and, you know, thankfully you know, Julie, I, I can't remember if Sarah was part of it. I know Julie was part of it. The um, more than mean video no, that they was. Did, she was. Yeah, was. Sarah and Julie did yeah. that together. And yeah, Julie and I have talked about it. I mean, I just I just have such admiration for yeah. them for, for doing that. And just, uh, I, you know, I've said to them both that I'm not sure I, I would have uh, the sort of hippopotamus skin or the rhinoceros skin to stand up to all of that. I just think it's so challenging. And yet, uh, you know, they have, and so many others have, Mm -hmm. but I've also talked to, um, you know, younger sports writers and I've also listened to 
scholars who have really done research into this. And even though you stand up to it and you're able to um, to push back against it, it's exhausting. And it's it's been a factor that has pushed pushed women out of um, yeah. out of doing this. And for that, I really still feel for them and understand it at the same time. It's really exhausting to have to always constantly be pushing back. You know, so I, I have a note here to to say to you um, to talk about the emotional and physical burden on women to keep fighting day in and day out when it comes to these types of roles and whether it's what they're getting on social media or just like the actual grind and dealing with, you know, Nick Saban being a jerk uh, on air, you know, with your Maria Taylor. And, you know, I mean, what I loved about that situation, not that exact situation, obviously, because Maria is lovely and did not at all deserve that. What I loved was the reaction from the public and that people are finally being like, "Eh, eh, eh." like you got to behave like an adult. (laughs) And, um, you know, but it is, I feel like women carry that burden so much because, you know, we don't have necessarily enough of the allies yet. Um, and it's getting better, but still there's just so much toll taken. There's a big toll. I mean, I certainly feel like I absorbed an awful lot during that time and the toll was was large and led me to make some decisions in my personal life about a a marriage that I got into that I probably shouldn't have gotten into, but did it sort of seeking sort of a safety zone for myself to kind of fall into. in, in some ways, uh, there can be a protective notion of, of being a wife because being a wife sort of comes with very stereotypic assumptions uh, that don't uh, come with being a single woman who is kind of looking looked as, at as ambitious and aggressive and all those characterizations that were made of me. So there were definitely an emotional and a, and a personal toll that was taken uh, on me. And I definitely still see that and hear that and read it on Twitter. And some of the young women I, I, I'm in touch with and are in touch with me share that, uh, that it, that it, it really, it really stings and it hurts. I mean, I, I admire them because they're better at it. But uh, as I said before, that toll is, that toll can be large. And then there is inevitably um, something that we are tired of talking about, but we're tired of talking about it because we've been talking about it for decades and it hasn't uh, worked itself out. But that's kind of the division of labor and, uh, you know, both emotional and physical within a within a marriage. And uh, when you start thinking about family issues and family time and uh, even dating, um, it can take its toll if you are actually someone who has to show up at a stadium every night or a ballpark or whatever. You know, I know that I didn't have, um, you know, the typical 20 year old, uh, you know, 20 something experience as a woman, you know, in terms of my dating and what normal, <laughs> normal, uh, you know, 20 year old women do. Um, normal 20 year old women in the seventies didn't spend every night at a baseball park sitting (laughs) in a press box, you know, scoring baseball games and riding the subway home alone. Um, you know, they were going out and, you know, kind of developing their, their, their broader life and they weren't going down and 
sitting in a bar after a game with all of the other, you know, kind of bro brothers who had been up at the game, you know, and trying to try to out um, sports talk them and, uh, you know, kind of fit in. (laughs) That was, you know, that was a very odd way to spend uh, sort of core years in my mid 20s. But, you know, at the time, I wouldn't have been anywhere else. Right. So um, I think I think that's something that, you know, particularly it's funny. I, I've talked about this, keeping women in working in sports. Um, there's a, a big drop off um, of women who come into the sports industry and then leave it. And that's because of that demanding schedule. So people who work for hockey clubs, for baseball clubs in particular, um, it's really difficult to keep them um, and to keep them engaged because of that desire to potentially start a family and what does that mean? And they, and there's that thinking ahead that sometimes women do. Um, and by sometimes, I mean, literally every day we all do it. Um, uh, and you know, well, if I take this job in hockey or if I stay in this job in hockey or I take this promotion in hockey, even though I don't even have a boyfriend, you know, thinking about like what that means for if you have a kid, maybe potentially with that guy that you haven't yet met, but you're probably going to marry and have a kid with and what mm-hmm. that means yeah. and and that drop off there. Um, and then there's the, uh, you know, for people, for me, I, I don't want to speak for anyone else, but the other you know, relational factor is the, the very strange intimidation factor, which is something I've dealt with. And it's guys being intimidated by the fact that I have the job that I have, which is hilarious um, because it's just dumb. And, And it makes me laugh every single time because I'm the least intimidating person ever. So Um, I think that, that those are still things that, that people face today, um, in terms of trying to figure out their, you know, personal lives with their careers in sports. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sports, when you think about it, sports is still one of those cultural zones in our lives where it's still uh, presumed to be, you know, a male-dominated area. Um, when you think about it, of course, why wouldn't we think of it that way? Uh, I think that the latest uh, look at this, I think I'm right on this, that I think 2% of the sports that are covered on major broadcast outlets are women's sports. Right. I mean, right now we have the WNBA, you know, semifinals going on. And it's on ESPN News. (laughs) Exactly. And you're not reading about it. You know, in papers, you're not following it every day. There's some phenomenal games going on. They're winning at last shot of the buzzer and, you know, amazing stuff going on. And some of the veterans of this league are just playing in dynamic, incredible games. It's not on. You can't find it. And, you know, when you're looking at the uh, makeup of sports departments, You've seen it barely budge in the last few decades. It it still is not anywhere without ESPN in the mix. Without ESPN, you would be down where, you know, you could you could find the percentage on one hand, you know, of women who are in this business. Right. Um, And, you know, we've seen improvement because we've seen more visibility, 
you know, we have, um, you know, women in broadcast booths, which is great. I mean, we have Jessica Mendo, you know, we can go through the names. You know, we have Doris Burke, who's been at the NBA. You know, you can name them because there are so few in some ways. And we have then we have a kind of bevy of sideline reporters. And so there's this notion that the sideline reporting job is a woman's job. That's kind of like it was at Sports Illustrated. If you're a woman, you're going to be a researcher reporter until you kind of fight your way out of that designation. Um, so what can I say? It's, um, you know, we're still dealing with sort of this overhang that sports is belongs to the men. Well, and it still does. Yeah. And and I was going to say it, it does. And the, the way we the reason we know that is because when you look at the business side of sports, you know, so within whether you're talking about sports media or the sports properties themselves at the highest levels, it's still all men. Um, if you have a a panel um, from, the, you know, the, the commissioners of all the men's leagues at a sports law um, symposium, it's going to be all men that are up there because there are no female commission, you know, commissioners. And so that's, that's part of the problem too, is because there aren't, people are dropping off. There aren't women in those highest ranks as, uh, as possibility models. And then we hit, this is exactly why I have this podcast to show young women, you know, that they do have these possibility models out there. These women who have done great things in our industry that are still in our industry that might not be in our industry still, whatever, all the different types of jobs that they can have and they can do it and they can lead fulfilled lives. And I mean, but how, how much longer (laughs) until we, you know, we don't need this type of podcast, you know, until we don't need to continuously have the, the, the women's conventions um, I, I think that's, again, where we get that emotional burden, you know, comes back onto us all because we feel like we need to, you know, help push things along. Right. And pull women up. And I don't know. I feel like yeah, I'm talking no, in I circles. Think, no, 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 it's, <laughs> it's not circles. It's always good to have these conversations. But I will say, I think that you probably have a fairly safe job and employment for uh, the foreseeable future. Um, I do think there will be continued to be a need for these discussions. I think we are far from, uh, you know, fully resolving this and coming to a point where we have a feeling that a woman can enter this 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 realm, this job, and feel as though she is accepted, uh, um, you know, just on a basis as 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 a man would be accepted. I think it's just a it takes a special kind of person to do it. There are exceptional women who do it. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're seeing more existing coaches in the NBA where we've been told by that commissioner that it won't be too long until uh, he envisions that there will be a woman coach. But, you know, again, we're in the process still of dealing with, you know, one, one, one. Right. And it is exhausting to be the one. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the great benefit, as you've said, is that, you know, the reaction that people have to some of these incidents is very gratifying. And uh, unlike when I was in the 70s and I was having to uh, take a league, uh, a major league to court. Now, if you find that there are incidents that involve players and the women, which there are sadly on occasion, not often, but on occasion, you know, the leagues will be among the first to say, 
this is unacceptable. Right. And there will be, and that's very different. So I think before we get ourselves too depressed about what's going on, (laughs) it's really wise to stand back and say there are massive major changes that have happened over time. And we all know that while the law can be changed by a judge's decision and a court's, um, you know, convening and making a decision, the uh, change in attitudes takes a lot longer. Yeah, it's a lot longer. And, uh, you know, that arc of history that uh, Obama talks about, the uh, long arc of history, uh, suffrage took how many years to happen? Women's suffrage. I think we have to keep the longer game in uh, in focus and, and also, you know, champion the changes that have taken place because there's women, men, the male sports writers today are among and the and the and the men who share the broadcast booth with these women are among the first to 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 talk about how wonderful they feel it is to have them as colleagues. That's a very different notion right. than when I was there. You know, they weren't eager to see us. There was a whole <laughs> There was a whole generation that had to be cleared out, you know, Bowie Kuhn's generation, a lot of the older sports writers who had been on the baseball beat forever. Right. And, um, you know, now it's very different. So I do think that, you know, as we're having this conversation, we have to remember that change comes slowly. It comes only by continuing to do what we're doing, having these conversations, encouraging women, mentoring women who want to come in, who have the skills and the talents to do it. And, um, you know, we just have to keep doing it. And that's what they're doing. And that's why I admire, you know, these young people so much. And I'm so happy to see um, them, you know, rising to positions that back in my day, we would never have imagined possible, never have imagined possible. So, you know, we have to celebrate the progress while we're pushing. I think I think that's actually the perfect place to start wrapping up because there are so many other things I wanted to ask you about, but I do know that if I go too far into things, I, it may get dark. So let's let's start. Well, you know, we can always do this again too. Of course. Uh, You know, I'm I'm still writing this memoir. So maybe by the time it comes out, we'll, uh, we'll circle back and there'll be some other aspects to, to talk about. Yes. And that's, um, projected for next year, correct? Well, it's projected for when I finish writing it. Okay. Um, that you works. Know, I, I, I fortunately do not have a, an imposed deadline at this point. And, you know, I'm making steady progress and uh, I'd like to have it out next year. But if it's the year after, that's fine with me, too. I just want it to be the right book. Yeah, of course. And, you know, so um, when it's ready, it'll be ready. But I'll keep you in mind. Oh, my gosh, please do. I would love, love, love to read it. Um, and will, regardless of you reaching out. <laughs> um, one of the things that I, the other question that I tend to ask everyone, and it's a really great question for um, my younger listeners, um, and it's a good reminder for, for some mm-hmm. of my more seasoned ones, and that is, what do you do by way of self-care? Ah, self-care. Okay, I row every single morning. You do um, still? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, Rowing I, um, is so hard. <laughs> well, hard is hard is good. Challenges yeah. are good, but I live right near the Charles River. Mm-hmm. So I set my alarm. I set my little Google Mini for uh, 445. 
Oh my gosh. And I get up at 4.45 and I, on Tuesday and Thursdays when I row, I need to be at the boathouse by 5.15. And on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I need to be there by 5.30. And we are out on the river for an hour and a half. And um, that is how I do my self-care to start my day. And when I come home from that, I feel like nothing can go wrong. It's just been a great start. And there we go. And the other thing I do is that I engage myself in what I believe to be the most urgent issue of our day. And I do it for my daughter and I do it for me and for all of our children. And that is climate change. I am very, very active with a group called Mothers Out Front. It's been such a joy to meet these mothers around the country who are absolutely committed to ensuring so that when their child asks them someday, what did you do to prevent this catastrophe that was hanging over us and that everyone knew was coming? And I want to be able to say to my daughter, I did everything I could. And um, that feels right to me and good for me. So um, I'm very, very involved with um, that as an activist at this point. And in between that, I write my memoir. So that's kind of my life. And am I, well, first of all, that's amazing that you're involved in that organization. And thank you for doing that. Um, the rowing is just astonishing. I, you know, have done certain uh, group exercise classes that have rowing as part of it. And it, it's just so painful to me. Um, but am I correct in that you have a couple of fur balls too? I have three cats, two of whom my daughter chose at a rescue mission over in uh, Boston, who are brother and sister. They're very hungry right now, by the way. They've been sitting patiently waiting for me to feed them. Did you get them at due. Angel? Did you get them at I Angel? Did. Yeah, I got an Angel. Yeah. And then um, and then uh, I have another cat that I uh, made the mistake <laughs> of walking through a no-kill shelter when I went to see a friend of mine at an open studio with her photographs. <laughs> and to get back to my car, I sort of took a, a, a part of the triangle that I probably shouldn't have. I walked through a no-kill shelter and saw a tuxedo cat that looked just like mine. And I sort of said to myself, no one else is going to adopt this cat. This cat oh. had to be about six or seven years old. And and he's never let me touch him. I can't. I can't touch him. He he lived under my bed for six months. But the cats love him, and he loves the cats. And it doesn't doesn't matter that he will not let me come near him. I think he was traumatized by some adult, you know, yeah. some human in his life. And um, so he joined our family. And um, you know, he's just our third guy, and hangs out with our two other ones, and uh, they love each other. So. You know what? I don't know. I don't know what his issue is. I, I'm not I don't have a degree in psychology of cats, but there's something, something well, that uh, happened. It's but, it's yeah. funny. Those those are the cats that like unexpectedly one day just jump on your lap. So you never know. You never know. I'll let you know if he does. Oh, please do. I have <laughs> I have my sweet girl, Zoe, and um, who was a feral kitten rescue. Oh, yeah. And she's a tortie and she's gorgeous. And then um, in April, we lost our very handsome, very loving Simon boy. He was a really sweet orange tabby. Just everybody oh. in the world loved him. I mean, people who hated cats loved him. I mean, he was just great. So we're big fans of the furballs here. 
Well, I'm sorry for your loss. These guys are just become our best friends and yeah. they just, uh, you know, are incredible. And one of them is looking at me with his big eyes right now saying, are you going to stop talking and feed me? <laughs> well, then we'll let so. you go. Thank <laughs> okay. you so much for being on the podcast, Melissa. I really, really appreciate it. Lots of fun. And I'll, uh, we'll stay in touch. Absolutely. So, thank you. Thank you so much to Melissa for coming on. And I mean, we, there was so much of her life that I didn't get to y'all. And I really wanted to, I have all of these notes. She has a really fascinating career that goes on. She's done some amazing things. A lot of it, again, focused on um, societal issues of women, uh, particularly unmarried mothers and adoption and, and things like that. And so it's just, it's crazy that I didn't get to any of that, but I will provide some links to some of her other work so that you guys can get a a more full picture of Melissa, but I am very grateful to her. She responded to our tweet online asking if she would be a guest and she did. So I'm very appreciative of her. If you are enjoying our podcast, which of course you are because you're listening to it right now, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Honestly, the reviews make my day. Um, You have no idea. But they also allow other people who aren't necessarily looking for our podcast to find it. So it's really helpful in like the weird algorithms that all of these podcatchers do. So uh, subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Don't forget to check out RadioInfluence.com for my podcast and many others within the Radio Influence family, which are interesting and fun. Um, And then our website is LTPFPod.com. You can find us uh, on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram at LTPFPod. Uh, we're trying to be more engaged on there. So say hello. And you can always shoot us an email at ltpfpod at gmail.com. Have a great week. I'm Jerry Petuck, CEO of Radio Influence. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on this program, or you have some show ideas that you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you took time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means a lot. Without you, the listeners, we wouldn't exist. So thank you again for downloading and subscribing to this show. Don't forget to check out RadioInfluence.com to see what other shows we also have to offer. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com. 